Hello and welcome to another episode of A Positive Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Tovito, an incredible fun app for kids, but more about that soon. If you'd like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or a family member or a special occasion, or just because you love this podcast, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, or you can email me directly at razel at jewishpeabody.com. If you're curious to hear more about positive coaching and, you know, set up your own free session to hear about positive coaching, what it is and why it might be a good fit for you, please check out my website or you can reach out through Instagram at a positive coach. So I want to share with you all a very powerful email that I received this past week. It really brought me to tears, but it just highlights the importance and the impact that this podcast is having on so many people. I received this email from a grieving brokenhearted mother. She reached out sharing how she had listened to the episode on somatic healing with Helena Herman, episode number 26. If you haven't heard it yet, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. It's really powerful. Well, this woman, she heard that episode and she decided to reach out and do a session of somatic healing with Helena. And she was able to learn some breathing techniques and calming grounding exercises, just one session. At that time, she did not realize how valuable this really was. Only one week later, her family was hit with an unimaginable trauma. At one point, due to so much heartbreak and pain, her body was so physically drained, she couldn't sit up. Hatsala was called, the vitals were checked, and they were ready to transport her to the hospital. She said to them, give me a few minutes, a little bit of space. And she tapped into the breathing techniques from Helena that she had learned, and she was able to bring her vitals to normal numbers. She felt so empowered that she had tools to get in control of herself. And because of that, she kept herself grounded and calm during some very difficult moments. These kind of messages truly, truly are powerful. First of all, this is one of the reasons I'm finding so much meaning and purpose in continuing these podcast episodes. Additionally, it really highlights the idea that we need to educate ourselves and reach out to get that assistance for ourselves, that help, even even during calm, non-challenging times. When we do that work during the calmer, easier moments, it helps us build resilience and it helps us have skills to tap into, to use during those difficult, challenging moments. So I wanna once again encourage any of you out there who might need some extra support or learn some breathing techniques or learn tools how to take control of your bodies and minds, you should check out somatic therapy, somatic healing. And Helena is one of the many people that can help you with that. You can reach out through her website, coachingwithhelena.com. The link is in the show notes as well. This is not a paid advertisement. This is just my personal experience with her. And I just feel that so many of us can gain so much from this kind of therapy and support. So let's get right into today's episode, episode number 39, Addiction, Recovery, and Healing. And that's the name of this number 39 episode. And it's a couple's perspective. As I said before, You know, one of the goals of this podcast is to bring awareness and education, language and understanding around mental health and addiction, besides many other things. But in today's episode, Moshe Dov Hanin and his wife Chaya Hanin show up in a real authentic way and they share their story of hope and healing. And it's an incredible story. From a very young age of 12, Moshe Dov used alcohol and later drugs to deal with his loneliness and pain and this led to a life of unimaginable addiction. Eventually, together with the support of his wife and his family, he began the long journey of recovery and healing. 
Today, Maisha Dove coaches and helps many others on their journey of recovery. And this story is going to inspire you and it's going to help bring awareness around a difficult topic. If you're curious to reach out and hear more from Moshe Hanan, you can reach him on Instagram or Facebook. He's under the name Coach Moshe. And by WhatsApp, you can reach out through to that through him that way as well. The number is in the show notes. And I know many people are going to be helped by listening to the story of hope and healing. So let's get right into this episode. Sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. I'm sure many of you are going to resonate with what I'm about to share with you all. Children and technology. It's a battle. In my home, I'm always working on trying to keep my children off of devices, getting them out there, moving, crafts, baking, whatever it is, slime making. I want them off of devices. And to help that, we have a specific screen time that we use. And during the screen time, they're, they're only allowed to go on to specific websites. One of the apps that my children use is Tovito. Tovito is a website and an app that has hundreds of original and quality videos for Jewish boys and girls. And I'm proud to say that today, this episode is sponsored by Tovito. It is designed, Tovito, to be a safer and simpler place for Jewish kids entertainment so that you can literally hand the device to your child for a limited amount of time, obviously, and you can be comforted knowing that there are no ads and no inappropriate videos. As parents, we all know that YouTube, there are so many kids' videos that we may enjoy, but at the same time, there's so much that that is not appropriate for children and all the pop-up ads, etc. But with Tovito, you won't have to worry about that. What's different about Tovito is that new videos are added weekly and content is produced solely for the subscribers. And we're talking really exciting videos, 3D animation, live action film, and so much more. They have a special video about Maccabees coming out in honor of Hanukkah. And Tovito makes a great gift for the whole family. Bubbies and Zadies, aunts and uncles, if you're looking to get a gift for your nieces and nephews or grandchildren or children, this is a great gift. You don't have to get individual presents. You can get it for the whole family. And there's things and entertainment on there that each child will find suitable for them. My nine-year-old daughter loves Tobito. She will literally have a choice to go onto PBS Kids or Tobito, and I find that she gravitates to it and watches the videos over and over again because she loves how the music, the dancing, the excitement, she's very much interested in Tobito. Usually Tobito is $99 a year, but you can get a special code for your subscription, which is positive, just type that in, as your code, and you will get an additional 15% off on Tovito.com. So go to T-O-V-E-E-D-O.com, Tovito.com, and download it today. You know, the cool thing is Tovito is available on almost every platform. So your smart TV, your website, your iPad, all the apps, it's available for download. You could put it on your device and then take it while you're traveling. And it's really a great tool. So thank you to Tovito for sponsoring today's episode. And I encourage you to go check it out. I'm sure your children are going to love it as much as mine. Coach Moshe and Chaya Hanan, welcome. It's an honor. It's a privilege to have you here on a positive podcast. Thank you for your willingness to share in a real authentic way here. And I'm sure so many people are going to gain from this conversation. It's so, so good to be here. I know that like you guys aren't seeing my face right now but like I'm smiling so much looking at you and like so excited just to sit here and chat with you it's really an honor thank you thank you I appreciate that 
So I remember when I heard Maisha Dove, you shared your story at this event, uh, it was a few years ago in Alitera. It was like mm -hmm. the beginning of a time period, I believe it was like the opening of a new era. And I feel like you, you know, started that. You cracked open that shell and you shared this, your story and it began, it was so like, I remember where I was sitting when I listened to it. I can remember exactly just listening to that and being so moved by it. I know so many people began their process of healing from listening to that story. And I, at the time I was thinking about what it was like for your family and your wife and your siblings and your parents and your extended family. None of us live in a bubble. We have our whole world around us and all of us are impacted in some way or the other. And I'm so grateful for you guys willingness to share because I know so many people are going to gain from it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We feel the same way. And I, I hear this from people at times where they're like, I heard your story or thank you for sharing or being vulnerable. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's why I'm doing it. Or that's not the only reason why I'm doing it. Partly I'm doing it because it's, it's helpful and healing for me. And there's something that I'm gaining out of it, but like hearing back from others that like, it's important to share our story definitely touches that touches my heart and a lot. Yeah. It's a really powerful thing, sharing your story. I don't, you know, I, I look back at different periods in my life that were difficult and challenging. And I say like, what was it that I needed at that time? But what, what would have been so helpful to me? And I, and I think about this one piece, if I would know that I wasn't alone, if mm -hmm. I would know that there are others that are struggling with something similar, if I would know that I, this, this is going to be okay because people have been here before and have gotten through this and are better for it. It's such a important piece in in life. And I, I think we don't realize the value. And I think that you guys totally are sharing in a real way. It's, it's going to help a lot of people. I'm feeling called to preface because you mentioned it earlier. And that is that before I shared publicly, there are many things that I did. And one of them was that I created bullet points of parts of my story that I would cover. And I sent it to my family, to all my siblings and parents. And I gave them time to review it and say, if there's any part of this that you're not comfortable with me sharing, please let me know. Wow. Okay. So uh, it might be helpful to just know that. Um, That's so beautiful because I feel like so many times we want to share. And when we get the support of our family and our loved ones, it helps us to be able to be more comfortable and really, sh you know, share it in, in a, in a good way. Yeah. Um, also, when I put it in written form in the Nusheikh Chabad newsletter, I also had my daughter read it before uh, before I publicized it. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's just it's just I think it's helpful for people to know um, if somebody wants to share their story. Sometimes it's helpful to do that. I think I I probably begin with. I'm very aware as of now that there's a certain experience that I've had perhaps many times, but it's still, it still comes up in my work and it comes up always in a more experiential way and in a deeper and, and a, I'm like, I'm experiencing those moments over again, uh, but always in a much more visceral and experiential way. So, the experience is being in the world, looking around and feeling and experiencing that I'm alone. 
And when I look around and I look for my mother and I look for my father and I look for an adult or somebody, I just look for somebody. And I just, I don't know that I can even approach them. And I feel alone. And from there arises all these different ideas that have come over the years of how am I going to deal with this? So now that I've landed in this island, the ship is broken, um, I'm calling out to the plane, to the ship, and nobody's nobody's coming. Now I have to start figuring out, okay, so how am I going to start surviving on this island all by myself? Um, and I discovered things in the process. And let me, I just want to highlight as much as possible is this was my experience. This was my internal experience. It wasn't necessarily the external. Uh, you know, if other people would look at, you know, many adults in my life, you know, cousins, you know, they, my cousins are older, like an older generation, but they say, like, we remember you, you were a good, sweet kid, you, you know, we loved you, and and I can't believe that this is what you're experiencing, like, it makes no sense to me, and and the truth is, it doesn't, doesn't make sense necessarily, but that was my internal experience, and yeah, it started off with things like, uh, you know, opening up um, electronics, taking out the screws and getting into it and pulling out the magnets. And and um, even though it could have been my brother's new stereo um, and there were consequences for that. And then there was, um, I found not being alone or, or buying my way into friendships and into camaraderie and into the family through snacks at school and 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 maybe good in, being good at sports that's when I get once I got older um shoplifting and stealing so that I had money and with the money I can buy chip into a family project uh, you know so it was always different things that had me not feel alone but it was always an external source that empowered me to do that. It was always a thing or an action or an achievement or 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 being silly or you know whatever it may be. But it was always um, to compensate for a deficit. There was no the, like the baseline was always under under a normal or healthy way to feel. And for the most part, it like it, it worked. You know, I survived on on that little island and. Uh, and to a certain extent, I, I, I lived and I really enjoyed, a, you know, a, a large portion, as far as I remember, like a large portion of, but there was always this nagging, consistent, constant thing, which like, if, if it was quiet enough, I would hear it. If it was dark enough, I would see it. What, what was it saying? It wasn't something it was saying. It was, the, it was an experience of being alone. Feeling, it's just feeling. it was just a feeling of loneliness like an existential kind of loneliness that even if yeah. you were with people and even if there were loved ones around there was just yeah. this feeling of loneliness. it was only some sort of bridge to cross over in order to get into where i already was and when you would do those activities did it alleviate it did it yeah. help like if you were busy ab ab absorbed in fixing a game or on taking it apart or getting money and buying snacks and selling them and getting attention did at those moments you didn't feel lonely based on my my memory yes yeah yeah and it worked yeah it was and, coping uh, skills yeah they were coping skills just like that's why i love that visual that i have you know the idea of like just being in this island and like yeah i 
found things to eat and I was able to build a fire and I was able to stay warm, but I was alone, you know, or I felt alone. And yeah, fast forward a little bit. Um, I eventually ended up in uh, finding that peace of mind and the camaraderie and that being one with others uh, through alcohol. My earliest memories of drinking alcohol as a way of helping me as an actual tool was when I was, I guess, around 12 years old and classmates started having bar mitzvahs. And I would want to have courage to just dance. Yeah, at the time, I was a little bit, uh, you know, um, risky, you know, make a flip on the dance floor and things like that. So I needed courage, uh, you know, to be part of everything. And, and I couldn't just be like anybody else. I had to be like I was compensating, like I'm, I'm here with a deficit. I have to do a little bit extra so that I can so that I can even out the playing field as if everybody's better than me um, and I'm not included and nobody wants me around. So I have to do something extraordinary. You know, from there, it, it turned into, and again, this is just based on my current recollection of what it was like, but yeah, I, I would uh, sneak some wine out. I would sneak some booze out from my parents' house. I would go to the bodegas because I looked older and they would sell me alcohol. I would hang out with older guys, <clears throat> a relative that had an apartment that I would hang out with when I was like 13, 14 and halfway through to, to 15, um, where I would go hang out over there. You know, they would smoke weed. I wouldn't smoke weed. I refused because that's drugs. I wouldn't want to do that. But um, it was a place where I was able to drink and feel a part of and you know, numb myself also through watching TV. And from there, it was just a constant, subtle progression of more tolerance, more drinking, more often. And for the most part, no real consequences. I crossed over my boundary of uh, smoking weed when I was 19 and instantly was was hooked. I became a daily smoker from pretty much the first day I had it. You said like we're never going back like this is this is the ultimate feeling. We were dating at the time and he called me and I was like so nervous like when he's like I think you want to try it because I knew his like friends brothers like people around him smoke and I also never smoked. We, we had drunk you know but like when he said he tried it he's like oh like you don't even know what this feels like. Like I had this feeling, this this like nervous, like like what is gonna happen, and what like what does this mean? And I didn't even realize that he was like addicted to alcohol because it's so normal, it's so acceptable. It's like you don't notice it. He wasn't crazy alcoholic or like crazy wild drunk. It was just everyone drank drunk a lot. It kind of felt normal. Yeah. But I I had this like pit in my stomach when he told me. Okay. Oh, that's funny. I don't remember. And, and I, I had this fear. I'm like, you're going to need it. You're going to, and yeah, projected that. That's true. I've heard a few people say that their first interaction with weed was um, a negative one. They had like, it was very, it didn't work out for them. And then the next time it was excellent. So you're not, oh, that wasn't no, your experience. No, okay. Not, not in the slightest. Like, I'm you even just, smiling. It, it was love at first was. sight. It was love. It was okay. Called love at first sight, but I can't say it. In front of you can say that. Okay, <laughs> you can say it, it about your wife. I was, I was hooked. Oh my god, yeah, I was hooked. It, you know, I guess because 
don't know why it was, but like I, I the first time I smoked, I felt that I could handle a lot. So I went, I just kept going. Like uh, I, I smoked and I didn't feel anything, smoked more, didn't feel anything, smoked more. Next thing I know, it, I'm, 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 I'm laughing for a very, very long time. And, and I'm with people that I love. And the next day, it's like, of course I'm going to do it again. Of course. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a good friend that tells me like the first time he ever smoked weed with a friend. And um, they smoked weed. He had a great time. They both had a great time. And the next morning, he called his friend. He said, that was great. Let's do it again. And his friend was like, no. Mm. And he just didn't get it. Right? This friend was in recovery. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that was me. Um, and from then, it was like, uh, I try to get it as often as possible, um, not going to places unless I had it, um, even stealing from people, their stashes, which I've since uh, I've done my amends, so I can easily say it. Uh, all those people have approached and I've uh, made amends to them. But yeah, that's um, that's what I did from right away in the beginning. You know, um, I was also uh, being uh, living a dual life, or like being uh, not hypocritical, but I, I was I wasn't being authentic. You know, because on one hand, I spent a year being. Uh, I was, I was teaching in a yeshiva and I was a dorm counselor and I was showing up 100% for that. But when nobody was looking, I was, you know, or at night, you know, I was getting high. So I was about 19 then. Yeah, I was 19 then. Um, I eventually uh, would smoke weed and drink all the time. I just want to like bring you guys to a place of where we were in our relationship. Um, just, I guess, to bring me in. Um, yeah, so tell we us dated, about that. Yeah, we met it. We were eighteen. I mean, you can carry on at any point, but like, I, like, because it's like an important part of this part of the story. We met when we were eighteen. I had like just left home, went to Israel for seminary, and at that point, he was still eighteen, so he had not smoked weed. But we were like meet up on weekends, partying every off Shabbos, every night off, like without group of friends specifically but like also us two on our own and also like kind of went like deep in love like pretty quickly after we met a couple months after we met and then like we were like a thing that year it was just like this like world of like I had never dated any boys I didn't have any boyfriends any like any I mean my family we had plenty of you know mixed people at our in our Shabbos table but not like me myself so this was like a whole world of like newness and maturity and amazingness at the point of 19 when he started smoking weed I was I was working on shluchas you know for that year and he was in in a yeshiva working that year and we spoke a lot um at nighttime and like and we spoke about dating we spoke about getting married and we were on and off breaking up yes no like one day other people you are for me you're not for me there was a lot of drama in that and but there was like this feeling of like when he started smoking weed like I mentioned before like this like this pit in my stomach of like this doesn't feel right and and like you're saying that progressed I didn't even know what addiction meant I didn't know but I knew you were addicted to this thing and I knew you needed it and you depended on it but I was also like okay it's not going to be forever like this we're going to figure this out um there's more to that like we didn't get married right away but I just wanted to point out that like there's like this fear of the unknown 
and maybe alcohol wasn't so you know fearful but like the, the weed, weed for me was like this is this is a no this is a this is a this is a bottom line for me and it apparently wasn't right it it's was. so fascinating that you're saying that because i would say today the 18 year olds and 19 year olds that are <clears throat> perhaps you know trying marijuana and you know doing all that it's a different line for them so whereas it's was it 20 years ago we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, you know i'm not sure exactly years, years. Yeah. 18 so if you look at that today it's not like that people look at weed and alcohol as pretty much the same but what i'm hearing mm-hmm. you both say is that at, at that time alcohol was okay whereas weed was not yet something that was acceptable mm-hmm. yeah and so i'm for- not gonna i'm not gonna lie at that point like from, you know in the age of 2021 when i hung out with him i tried it and i was like oh this is kind of cool this is kind of nice i've had a few okay experiences <clears> with it but a i never got addicted to it but it still was like this this big deal right sure um, yeah all right. no it's yeah. it's a it's an important thing to note because it it, it feels like our our community looks mm-hmm. at alcohol differently still than it looks at you know drugs um, even though times have yeah. changed, but there's a normalcy that surrounds that's it's, it's subtle. It's there in the background. It's it's there in yeshivas. It's there. It's there in Masifta. It's there at Shabbos. It's there Kiddush. It's it's so. I mean, it it, it it's an issue. I I believe mm-hmm. it's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I I'm uncomfortable with it. And mm-hmm. I have lots of boys. And it was always something I was concerned about. Yeah. Always. And it's a fear, like you said. Totally. It's something I mean, we need to talk about. Yeah, my our son is 12 and, and, and I see boy like 15-year-old boys for like Shabbos meals for bringing up. I'm like blows my mind that it's normal that even maybe their fathers are giving them all the time. I'm like, do you know? Like, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite bothersome. Now to get back to the story, mm-hmm. go ahead, continue with the timeline. Share with us. There, I think to to describe the desperation. Uh, what it came to once it became a habit and once it became something that I depended on. Um, because at the end of the day, that 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 sense of loneliness has been, again, this is just my understanding as of right now of what was happening, but that sense of loneliness, which ended up also uh, being combined with shame and resentment and uh, guilt and fear, it, that only only got worse because that that was never really. I ne- I never did anything about that. I never did anything about that. So that kept on getting worse, and I kept on increasing the amounts or increasing the ways. You know, it's um, or the the how often. So it's actually miracle you didn't turn to any other drugs. Yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, it is. It is, it is. Thank yes. God. Yeah, a lot you're, of people you're... around me were, and for for I don't know, by God's grace, I did, I did, I did try uh, Adderall uh, a few times, and that also did the trick. But it wasn't what I was looking for. It was just like a convenience, like um, a purring. I wanted to be able to drink all day, all night for two days or three days straight, and. Uh, that helped me wow. to continue drinking. So anytime that I don't need to stay up for three days straight, like what, what do I need it for? That's uh, so fascinating. I was, yeah, I was uh, studying for a uh, for a semicha test, right? You know, and I still wanted to smoke weed while I'm because I want to smoke weed all day. So 
uh, I just literally prepare myself like an entire cereal bowl full of weed and with mm -hmm. a bong and, and take some Adderall and then just sit there and learn Alpha Shabbos so wow. that I can pass the test. And, and it worked. So, of course, I'll, whenever I need it, I'll, I'll do that. But it wasn't, thank God, thank God, it wasn't something that... I wonder if that's because, and this is something, um, a theory I'm coming up with, is because you started elder. Like you started at 19. Mm, so yeah. there are there are teens Absolutely. that are starting younger, mm -hmm. which which is by the time they're 19, they need something stronger already. And their brain has not, it's also doing damage because the brain isn't where it needs to be at 19. It's starting earlier and earlier. And you're getting, you know, it doesn't work anymore. So you need something stronger and something stronger. So yeah, or maybe the younger you start, the more impressionable you are, the more of a sponge you are, right? So the yeah. more of a of a part of who you are is going to be. Possibly, I, I don't know. I don't know. I have no, I have no research on that, but yes, I'm just thinking. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So when I ran out of my uh, weed, which at the time I was in Israel, and and I had and there was nowhere for me to get it from, I did some some things that really uh, are, are sad, you know. Uh, well, in the most basic way, like I would buy a lot and end up selling. And then it went further to like, I would take all the utens anything that I used to smoke and I would sit there with a pin and I would like scrape out every single drop of residue that I possibly can and mix it into tobacco just so I could get a little bit just to get some relief. Uh, being on my hands and knees and combing through a carpet to try to find and gather some crumbs, trying to drink, right, drink before so that, you know, it's just, Risked, may take a lot of risks. Um, risked my life a few times when I was in South Africa. I went to some really, really dangerous neighborhoods um, to pick up weed. And just like these are things that happen. It's just weed. It's just weed. Yeah, but you like your life depended on it. Yeah, yeah, felt like yeah. that. Yeah, I just want to speak like for a second to the to the. To those who say, you know, weed yeah. is not addictive, you know, it's maybe it, it's not physically, it itself is not addictive as a substance, but when you're relying on it as a source of uh, relief of pain, then you're addicted to not, you know, it's, I would call it addictive. It's you're, a, just, you're just uh, in a mode of taking away your pain. It's, just, it's fascinating that you're bringing this up because I was actually going to say, I, I, I actually don't, I don't agree with the idea that it's just weed it's just pot i mean there's so much more research coming out now that the pot that's of today is different than the pot of um oh, you know for sure. 20 that's years for ago sure. 40 years ago and i mean also, yeah. yes and and the weed that people are getting on the streets in crown heights are definitely it's you can get it it's accessible and it's it is there's some dangerous stuff in there as well yeah when i was Do growing you, up when i was you know until the day i got sober like i had no friends that ended up in the psychiatric ward because they were having a what they call a marijuana induced psychosis you know there, there was i was the first person that i knew that's ever been to a psych ward yeah and and isn't that fascinating because you know people now we're hearing more and more about it it's and the numbers of cannabis induced psychosis is much higher than it was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Um, yeah. People are starting earlier and the effects of marijuana are stronger. Do you feel, and I'm curious, Chaya, you as well, mm -hmm. do you feel that um, there is such a thing as people being able to smoke pot just 
okay, it's not going to impact them. Like it's not addictive. Do you really feel, I'm curious to hear from you guys as somebody, yeah. I, I, I'm just, I would love to hear your feedback. Do you feel that people can just smoke pot just like they could have an occasional mm-hmm. beer? Totally. Yeah. I, I also think that, I mean, I mean, also because comparing ourselves. So when he introduced me to it and we, you know, we're in our early twenties, I was like, okay, I'll try it a few times. And I did. And, and for the most part, like it was like once or twice a year. And then and when we got married in our early years, also a couple times a year with him, because like he was drinking and smoking, it was fun. And it was the right occasion. Like for me, it was like, okay, we, um, it's pouring, like, like you said, or like we're going away on a vacation or we don't have kids yet, whatever it is. So like, right. uh, you know, and a handful of times and, and a lot of the experiences for me were negative. So it's like, I'm not dying to do that unless like I'm in a room with a friend and we're sitting on a couch and we have a candle and like, we're going to like get a little high. Um, and I'm not like, I wasn't addicted to it. My body wasn't cold to it in that same way. So I can easily say no and won't smoke again for another five years. Also, as, as his addiction progressed and he smoked more, we had this like a laundry room is where he like, like hung out and smoked on his own. It was like his little cave and he had his bong and his stash and it smelled like weed that I got to like, so turned off that idea and so triggered and traumatized by it. So for a good few years in the beginning of this recovery, like I wouldn't have like have ever tried that recreation. And it's something that I believe that I, I, I could once or twice in a very, very blue moon and enjoy it or not necessarily enjoy it and not feel like I need it or addicted to it. And, and I have other friends who love it and enjoy it regularly, but not don't feel that they have that. Yeah. They, like they need it. They're like looking for a source of like support from it. Right. This is something I, I mentioned to my children is that you don't know how your body's going to react to alcohol or drugs. Mm-hmm. You're really taking yeah. a risk by going in there. Like you don't know if yeah. you're going to have that tendency, though. I do think that people that have that disposition more. And like you said, describe this feeling of unhappiness or loneliness or uncomfortableness in their own skin are more likely to end up um, being addicts, but yeah. we don't really know the science on it. Yeah. Okay. So go yeah. ahead. Continue. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was what it was like towards my, my years when I was in Israel, when I was, uh, 21, 22, eventually I came back to New York. I continued smoking and my first attempt, uh, was before I came back to New York, my first attempt to stop smoking. So I wasn't even looking at alcohol as an issue. Um, I was just looking at smoking weed as an issue because I was clear that it's, it's something, it just doesn't feel good to be so dependent. It's also for sure cutting me off from my potential. Uh, it's a huge percentage of my potential is being cut off just from that. Um, so I wanted to try to quit. Um, I isolated for a week, drank all day, all night, just to make sure, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't smoke. Um, and within like two weeks, I had already. And started. how was it that that week when you weren't really like? Was it so painful, or the drinking was enough to like? You felt the, like you got the it. drinking was enough, and also I was in I was on a mission. Like I was obsessed with like compiling as much music as I possibly can. It was Napster or whatever it was that that website. That, yeah. yeah. So I was just busy like finding good music and downloading. It was just like on a mission, like boom, 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 obsessed. drink, drink, boom, drink. You know. Um, just get through the day, just get through the day. And 
um, and it worked for a week. Um, and then I, I, I stopped isolating and uh, within, I think like two weeks, I started, I started smoking again. So which, which automatically, I don't remember this, but I imagine I lost some self-respect and uh, I lost belief in myself. Um, the next time I tried to stop was when Chai and I got engaged. Uh, I committed to stopping, um, and then I was smoking um, behind it, like I was, I was hiding it from her from the beginning. Then I tried to quit when we got married, which I did for the week, again, drinking every single day. Quick interruption here for a moment with Anchor. Thank you for listening, and we'll be right back. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for listening. And now back to today's episode. Again, just want to reiterate, like I wasn't, I wasn't a messy, loud, disrespectful. I was put, I was put together. Like nobody would know how much, you how much I was drinking or even yeah. that I was drinking. Wow. I don't think I realized. I didn't think I realized. No, I had no idea. And that week when he came to Australia for our wedding, and I knew you were quitting to smoke or... So obviously we weren't speaking that week, but like he shows up at our wedding and like I had like there was this massive feeling of disconnect. Um because I you was suffering from anxiety. I had zero appetite. Um like you show up yeah. to a foreign country, you were so excited to get married. But yeah, you're like in this major struggle. And I was like, this is not how I meant to feel on my wedding. I didn't know what that meant or what he was going through exactly yeah. entirely. I didn't know how much you were drinking, but like I knew that we're not connected. Yeah, it was just kind of sad. Yeah, it's it's so incredible. I'm just curious. Would there have been anybody in your life at that time that had noticed, that picked up the signs, that was educated? Do you think that would have been beneficial to either of you to say, I'm noticing that there's a problem. Um, It looks like you're struggling. Do you need some support? Um, do you, I mean, listen, obviously everything's meant to be and everything happens at the right time. You can, like we've talked about, you cannot, you cannot make somebody get help. You can't, you can't pull somebody to recovery. They have to want it on their own, all of that. But is there somebody that could have been noticing and could have said something and been supportive to either of you? I'm laughing because I'm, I'm recognizing how far we've come that what you just said Literally, that combination of words, that vocabulary, simply did not exist in my world. Mm-hmm. Nowhere. Mm-hmm. Nowhere within miles. Not just not within my family, not within, like, nowhere. It just wasn't there. It was not, nobody spoke that language. Okay. During that dating period and, like, the back and forth and the on and off, like, I had turmoil turmoil because I knew there were, like, red flags and knew there were signs and it like I said, not understand fully what it all meant and things that he had shared with me, like his childhood and what he went through. I'm like, why am I going through this? I didn't share with my parents any of his story or any of the things he was actually doing. There was one person I confided in. Um, she was a therapist in Israel, but she was my family friend. So I didn't actually see her as a therapist. And we had a couple of conversations. And, uh, you know, at that point, after those conversations, we broke up for a period of six months. And then, you know, a year later, we get engaged. So, no, I didn't share with my friends what that, like, fear was, what that struggle was, here and there a little bit. But, and I definitely wouldn't tell my parents any of my fears. It had been four years of dating on and off and dating multiple other guys through the shit system who, like, 
this didn't work and that didn't work. So they were like so excited that I finally came to this decision. I knew what I wanted. And they're like, okay, we support you. We'll go behind you. Even though they also felt off about everything. They didn't know what, like, again, what to do, what that meant. What do we say? How to like tell her yes, tell her no. For my, like, it was just this like, okay, we're just gonna figure this out. Right. No, I, I, I hear that. I hear that. I'm, I, I'm just wondering still if there would be somebody mm -hmm. that would have seen some signs and could have done it, not in God forbid, like there's something wrong with him. Don't marry him right. or God forbid. Or like, are you crazy? Like what's wrong with you? Get it together. Right. I'm talking more about you're, you're right. struggling with something and I know what the struggle looks like and here's mm -hmm. some support, you know, would that have been mm -hmm. something that, you know, I, I just, I wonder, would that have been helpful at the time? Or do you think that at that moment, probably. Now, if somebody would have come and talked to me the way I speak to people now, probably timing is also of essence. Willingness is of essence. Sure, sure. All those um, things play a big role. All factors, yeah. Yeah, but and again, also for me, a safe person who was understanding and knew what that looked like to be in a relationship like that, you know, to just be a friend and talk to, for sure, that would have helped. Yeah, even if I went to therapy at a certain point in our marriage where it was like five years in, you know, really, really desperate desperate and sick and tired. She, she never, her therapist never actually mentioned the idea of getting support through the 12 steps of fellowship or, or that. You know, now it's, it's, I believe it's like one of the first things that a therapist will mention. Um, even though it's not the only answer and it's not an answer that works for everybody, but it's, it's great. It's really helpful. Absolutely. Support is where it's at. Okay. So you're, you're at your wedding. Wow. Yeah. So, so at our wedding, we stopped for, a, we, I stopped for a week, stopped smoking weed. I ended up starting again. And every time I started after stopping, I just lost more and more self-respect and also lost more and more hope in myself. And it took more and more courage and desperation and pain for me to try again. And every time I fail, it's just more, uh, you know, just more despair. And you know. that out like the first week we were married. So like the first few days of Cheryl Rock, he was clean. And I don't even remember like we were on a hire if we weren't, but like after a couple of days, we're staying in like this little, apartment near my parents house he's like I really need to get weed and he doesn't know anybody in Australia and I knew a friend of a friend who smoked and like you know she was a little older so like I messaged her and I'm like I had to like reach out to this person I've never smoked yeah maybe I had but like was not in that world in any way at all I'm like I really need to get some weed for my husband like it was like the most degrade like like oh yeah. I cannot believe I'm doing this and I'm getting it for him I wish you weren't smoking but like if I don't he's gonna be miserable and we're supposed to be having the best time we're supposed to be on our honeymoon. We're like, we're vacationing on a beautiful beach town, like in Australia. We're like, as if like, I'm not enjoying myself. So I better do what I gotta do to like get through this time and right. get him that week. And there was also this type of dynamic that was happening where, I mean, I wish I didn't do this. I feel bad, but it was like, you know, I'm away, I'm, I'm tens of whatever, however many miles away from home. Mm -hmm. I'm here on your, on mm -hmm. your turf. I'm in your, in your land. Mm -hmm. I'm quote unquote doing you a favor to be here with you. Yes, that So right. now you have to take care of me, and 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 I use that, sadly, regretfully, many times. Anytime we would go, like you know, we would go to Australia. She would come to visit, 
we would come to visit her parents once a year and um i would go for like two weeks and then i would come she would go with her by herself or with the kids for two weeks and I, no it was only with the kids she would go for like two weeks and i would i would come for this job too far the second week so before i came i would call her make sure get it like mm-hmm. make sure pick me up yeah, what you so need. That, mm-hmm. yeah because which, by the way, when I would take a trip out there, we'd stop in California. I would leave the airport in California or have a friend come pick me up, you know, um, smoke some weed and get back onto the plane. Get off the plane and make sure that, or at least expect, and if not, to get super disappointed if she didn't, if didn't prepare. But <laughs> it's insane. It's actually it, insane. It's crazy. It, it sounds insane. And at the same time, it makes so much sense. I mean, in mm-hmm. all relationships, we all do certain things mm-hmm. for our spouses. Um, in this case, you know, some people to make sure the house is, you know, their husbands like things clean. Some people's spouses like things organized, right? We all do different mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, it's really extremely has a, you know, this unhealthy, this need for him to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you had no other way of dealing with it. And you weren't educated. How are you supposed to know that there was actually something mm-hmm. else that you could have done, some other alternative? There was, there's, yeah, it's a lot. That's you know what, really I, translated in our relationship in a lot of ways. It's like need to please make sure he's fine, make sure he feels good, and not not just comfortable, but like I want to go to this friend who's inviting us for Shabbos. I don't feel comfortable going there. I don't know those people, like he would say. So I had to like turn down the invitation. I really want to go to this place. I really, like I'm comfortable to meet you people, go places and do things and opportunities were coming our way. He's like, no, no, I want to stay in our own little space and have my own little comforts. And I was just like and we didn't like we separated the times or like I went there and he came joined me resentfully and like rolled his eyes or like left halfway through or like stormed out or like was like I can't be here and like the amount of times like it was like this pleasing trying to make him comfortable figure it out for him and I knew it wasn't so normal I knew my friends weren't doing those things I just didn't know how like what else to do right to turn to save face Right. Yeah. To make it to make it seem as it wasn't so bad, really. You know, mm-hmm. he's also really kind. I love him. He's sweet. Mm-hmm. All of that mm-hmm. stuff. I, I'm so amazed by just watching the two of you together, like just seeing the comfortability and the, the ability to to talk about this in a way that there isn't this intense shame around it. You're not embarrassed and it's uncomfortable as you're re- reflecting mm-hmm. on it all. But it's an incredible thing to be able to look back at these experiences and not just want to like pull the cover over our heads, but actually really talk about it and embrace it in a real way because people that are listening, I'm sure can relate to a lot of this and I'm sure it's very helpful to them as well. And I just want to say, it's just, it's quite incredible. Going back for a second, how many years would you say was, were you in active addiction? I'd like to answer the question by changing the question first. (laughs) Go ahead. Sure. And if the question is, how long have I been using alcohol or drugs as a way of dealing with my pain or dealing with discomfort from when I was 12? Right. When would I, from when I was 12 till I was 27, um, when was I an addict where I would experience withdrawals or I would do things, I don't know. I think from the time you start smoking weed, for sure. Yeah. Around well, 20. Like around you were 20. really, you were, if you look at it, you know, it's coming up for me as you're sharing. 
you really were a very functioning addict. Meaning, yeah. yes, there were times oh, where things were uncomfortable, but like you, you had Should children. Talk about the non-functioning parts. Yeah, talk, <laughs> we can talk uh, about no, any I'm not joking, but like, yeah, he was functioning in a way that like it, it wasn't like you know smashing things or rolling down the stairs, or, like screaming or yelling or embarrassing at a shabbos meal, but like he, he couldn't get out of bed on a daily basis. So, which meant showing up to work at eleven or twelve. So people around us didn't need to know that because I went to work or I dropped our kids at playgroup, but. And he worked for family, so he was able to get away with it. Then it was like, Shabbos, okay, you roll into shul at 12 o'clock for the kiddish. Like, it's fine. Like, you know, it's not so whatever. You know, no one's like worried about it too much. And then like Sundays were the worst. We had two little kids, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, or a three-year-old and a one-year-old, or even just one. We had a baby. Just, it was like, he would sleep till two, for sure. 12, one, two. And, and to the point of, I was like, and I didn't know, or I didn't, like, I was so resentful and didn't, want to take them out on my own and like let's go to the museum let's go to the park like so I waited around and like hopping around the house waking him up yelling at him and all the kids saw was this like angry resentful annoyed at them because they're bothering me or they're, they're crying or they want to eat or they want their diapers changed again I could have just like picked up made a picnic bag met my friends gone to the zoo on a Sunday but like that rarely really ever happened so for the most part, like the where where we really like struggled and really saw that was that like the sleeping, the being not present, or then finally he'd wake up, get dressed, he'd, he'd eat cereal, he'd dive in at four o'clock, we'd go to the park for an hour and he'd like smile and try to like to get through this like family day. And 420, he's like, or when I that's just funny that I said that, but like 20 minutes after being there, he's like, let's go, I can't handle this anymore. Turn around. Go back home. Just to leave, just to leave the house. Yeah. After barely opening up my eyes, already smoking a bong, brushing my teeth, having smoking a bong, having a bowl of cereal, smoking a bong. If if we're if it takes us thirty seconds, or or, or if it takes us thirty seconds longer to get the kids strapped in. I'm going back for another song. Let me just get one more. Let me just get one more before we go. Wow. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about rock bottom or your rock bottom or what yeah, was it that yeah. got you to what, what, where did all this change? How did this change? Yeah. Um, so that sense of uh, resentment, uh, shame and loneliness which I, I just want to clarify, like I've, I had so many good people in my life. I had so many good friends and we were close, but that feeling from when I was, it was still there. It still lived inside of me. And that was something that I needed to know. Um, yeah, it was, it was just, it's just a, a dark cloud, you know, of all day, every day, struggling financially because addiction comes first crazy schedule, staying up till three, four o'clock in the morning every night, uh, paranoia, feeling death around me, saying goodbye to my kids while they were sleeping a few times. I didn't know about this at that time. Um, just like really feeling like it's getting darker and darker and soon the light's just gonna be turned off mm. and it's gonna be done. And that's what I felt on a pretty consistent basis. Like it's just happening more and more. The gift of desperation for me was on 
Sukhasara, I had my last drink. Again, I was super straight. Like, you never realized how much I drank that day. Uh, Chaya stepped out. I was watching the kids. She came back, and I was passed out, and they were being taken care of. She was freaking out. They were on the street in the front yeah. of our house in a not safe neighborhood. They were four and two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just didn't want to get into the details okay. because I had a whole ACS issue anyway. from it. Which part of the it all got cleared out. And I just wanted to make sure somebody's going to be like, oh, this is Anyway, yeah, that's just what I. I when I'm more responsible than I am, by the way. Yeah, when I got, when I got <laughs> woken up, thank you. When I got woken up, um, I was like slipping from being two different people. And this is just what I remember. It's a little, it's a little vague. And that was being really angry at my wife for waking me up. And really, also the way I woke him up, like he wasn't waking up at first, and I didn't know how drunk he was. Like he was drunk, it's so sorry, but not noticeably. So like he was not waking up, and I was so angry. Somebody in the house, and they were outside, and like I shook him, like I yelled, whatever. I did that, and then I got a cup of water and put it in his head. That was the first time I did something drastic, extreme. extreme. Which it's not even so extreme given how circumstances and the years of me trying to wake him up. Like I was afraid to do anything crazy, so I'm like pour a cup of water on his head and then he was just like like it was such a shock that I dared to wake him up from his sleep not his sleep you're like passed out I was so so upset and mm -hmm. um so I started slipping from like being really really upset to noticing how I'm behaving and feeling the shame and I went back and forth and then I started expressing how how smart my friends that have lost their lives to untreated addiction or mental illness and you mentioned that out loud like you mentioned like it's what's the right thing and like no we're not supposed to lie pacing up i did certain things to just show to demonstrate to my kids who were there how shameful and how unacceptable the way i was behaving was so i took a cup of water and poured it over my face so just to have the drips of water cross over my eyes and over my face um like if it was anything that was muddy or something like that. So yeah, I went to the mirror, hated the person I saw, smashed my head against the mirror, and then started walking up towards the roof. Where that's when Chaya called Hatzalah. And no, I called okay. my sister and your brother. I'm like, something's up. Like, I don't I don't know what like he took. Yeah, I, I would maybe say it's some sort of psychosis. I don't know if it was, but he was just like snapping so and acting yeah and unsafe so my brother-in-law and sister came over right away and one of your brothers or two of your brothers also came over right away and they when they were driving over they're like maybe we should call it Salah yeah sure I'm sure I said that yeah 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 hmm. sure I said call it Salah and um and thank god they did uh I was standing sitting there on the roof and they ended up Coming out and talking to me for a while, um, I was expressing how I, how better off my family would be without me, and how much if you try to convince me that I have so much to live for, I don't deserve any of it anyway. Um, but yeah, they, they, uh, whatever they said, and God's grace, and being open for moments seconds at a time i was willing to listen to what that's all member said 
And we went into his vehicle, it was a private vehicle, and he drove us, my brother, my two little brothers and myself, which is also crazy, but uh, we went to a psych ward. Um, I didn't know I was going there. I didn't know what a psych ward was. Like I said, zero reference. Um, but when, you know, when they told me that once I signed myself in, I, I can't smoke. I was a smoker, I was smoking cigarettes as well. Um, I refused to sign myself in until just literally hours. Um, yeah, we had medical bills. Like I, I wanted to make sure that it's covered by insurance because at the time we had these medical bills that were coming and it was like a lot of money. Anyway, so I eventually signed myself in and uh, it was um, on one hand, it was like it turned the cloud from gray to white. But it was still, I was locked inside, like I can't go anywhere. And uh, I felt like a lot of the staff there didn't really understand what I was going through. And um, there, was, there was one staff member there that I'm still working on forgiving. Um, but I got to meet this incredible human being um, there who spoke the language that only addicts know, you know, just. He just spoke to me and when I was just able to hear what he was saying. And uh, when I spoke to him, he really got me. And uh, to just say, say it short, he uh, encouraged me. Uh, my family was encouraging me and like really begging me to go to rehab. But when he said it, I was willing to listen and uh, went straight to rehab from there. They put me in some antidepressants when I was there also. So once I got to rehab, um, I also, I missed my, I'm just remembering that. But yeah, I, I missed my... Those, those pills that I was supposed to take a couple of times. So I went to the psychiatrist at the rehab and I told him. Um, and he said, look, you're in a safe place. Talk to us, share about your feelings. And if you need it, you can start taking it again. And uh, that's what I did. So thank God I haven't needed it since. And I, and I, I'm so grateful and I don't think I feel or significantly express or even like really recognize how fortunate I am, but like I just listened and I did what they said and I did what they suggested and I went to all the programs and I was willing to do the work and I was willing to be honest and share about my feelings and, and, and just participate. And from there, I followed all the suggestions and I went to an outpatient and and I went to um, to twelve step meetings and every day, every day, and Kai supported me un unconditionally. Um, How long of a period was this that you were taken until you came back to your family? It was a month and a week. You know, a week in the psych ward and a month in rehab. You know, wow. most stories are not like that. I no, that. no, you're you're very blessed. Mm -hmm. Most yeah. people end up in you know halfway house, well, not a halfway house, mm -hmm. but like a sober living until they're able to really come back mm -hmm. um but i think it's just because i just did not fight i, I was i was done from the, from the moment i walked in to the psych ward or like a certain point in the psych ward i surrendered i surrendered sounds and, it um, um yeah so 12 step meeting every day again i just highlight that i really supported me it was difficult for her but like i mean sure, let's every, Mm -hmm. Kaya, tell me about that. Like, what was that like? That month and a half. I mean, you have babies, you have children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you I have these. You're carrying. Yeah, well, my mom did like get on a plane right away and show up and help me so, in every single way. 
and I had a sister and brother-in-law living in New York. But I remember people asking me at the time or later or at some point, like, how did you manage those, like specifically those five weeks when you were alone and he, you had two yeah. little kids and you, you know, he was gone. And I like, no, he was in the psych ward because there was a lot of fear if he's going to go to rehab or not. And he was not listening to all of our suggestions and our begging. And I was like, he's not coming home unless he goes to rehab. But thank God he went. But from the moment he stepped in those doors, like I knew, I mean, I believed, or I, I hoped. And then he spoke, I couldn't speak for the first five days. And you go to rehab, that specific rehab is like a blackout where they just want to like get into you without like calling home to like, I don't know. He called me after blackout week. I was like, I knew, I knew on the phone. He's like, I've never been happier in my life. I could hear it in his voice, the things he was sharing with me. He's even like, are you ready to have more kids? I was like, okay, let's ah, just ah. relax. But, um, but like I knew right away and, and I so I remember telling people, I'm like, I don't care. It takes six months. Like I'm so done with you, with the way he, we were living and what he, we had to go through then that like, it was worth him being away, worth him being in rehab, worth people knowing that he was an addict, worth those, like when he also, when he got home, outpatient, daily meetings, mostly in the evenings or some during the day. And I was like, go to that meeting because when he came home from that meeting he was like a lighter person like I could breathe again and knowing that he was keep like doing the work in recovery maybe it's also the fear that I had of like him possibly relapsing because they talked about it I went to the rehab and I had the you know the family education week where I learned all about what it meant and they talked about the percentages of people that are going to come back to rehab and are going to relapse and go through this again and again and, and I was like I'm going to do whatever it takes for this to work out and I saw the benefits and he, and I'm so lucky. I'm so grateful that you were that person who was like, I'm going to listen to what they say. I'm going to do what they suggest. And our lives just like literally flipped around up like in for the positive 360. And that doesn't mean that like we don't struggle and we do, and we can talk about that for hours and hours and hours. But from that perspective, it was like, we are all in and we dove in. Yeah. And Kaya was also doing, like, we we joined an outpatient, right, as a couple, right? So Kaya was doing individual therapy and group therapy uh, and going to her 12-step meeting groups. And I was going to 12-step, and I was doing individual therapy and group therapy um, and and making that the priority of life. Yeah. You know? I remember and, you said you said on one of your podcasts that you were interviewing somebody in Neshama's podcast, which I love, and you said that I can't not afford to go to mm-hmm. therapy yeah, yeah. I can, so at first like I couldn't afford it financially but then I couldn't afford it emotionally right right it. he also said when yeah. he came out like he's like this is how my life is going to be right now the number one thing for at least for that period of time is is my recovery first and foremost in my life otherwise I have no life you're number two and our kids are our family you and kids and family are next yeah and that was like, what? Like, it's coming first. And I've heard, heard other women or other people in that position be like, Teresa's recovery before me. And and I was just like, he kept saying it in a way, in a loving way that like, was like, I'm going to die and I'm not going to be here or I'm going to go back to the way it was if I don't make this my priority. Right. And it was also, it wasn't just like her. It was like, it's before everything. Yeah. It's before religion it's before Shabbos it's before kosher although of course I kept kosher I'm just saying like it was before everything and then from there I was able to slowly start building up everything I think that was helpful for me to hear I know that sounds crazy but like that it was before religion as well and again I don't think you did anything at that point that was you weren't keeping on kosher but 
Or Shabbos, Shabbos, Shabbos like, was, was the, I didn't keep Shabbos right away. Right, but the What's idea the, that like, that was, religion is so important to you. And like, it's like almost like the Rebbe and Hasidus and my life and the way he was raised was like, this is the way I have to be. But like, as soon as like recovery became like the most important thing, I was like, oh, he's not playing games. And like, because I was pushed to the side as number who knows what for so many years. So you could have said that to me, it might not have meant that much, but, much, but like the way that you said also religion, I was like, oh yeah. Like, so, that, so basically him saying that religion, you knew how important it was for him. Mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. you realize he, this is the real deal. So like, of course I'm mm-hmm. not number two because mm-hmm. if, if first comes recovery and then comes his family, you know, mm-hmm. it, it makes sense because religion was now put on the, on the mm-hmm. back burner too, yeah. because you yeah. can't, yeah. you have to first, you have to first be healthy and then you can be religious. Yeah. Which in yeah. fact, the way I saw it was like, actually that is the religious thing to do. Uh, we can have a discussion or each person yeah. can speak to your local rabbi. Um, well, no, I think that. that's the case. I think um, I think the Rabbanim are coming around to that understanding yeah. at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um, one Rav said, you know, uh, I'm like a dinosaur. I need to just be brought into this generation. I think, and, and all the stories that are coming at them, they're, they're realizing that this is a fact. I'm not trying to say that the Rabbanim are, but I, I think that the reality of what people are dealing with makes yeah. it clear you can't be a religious jew if you're not healthy and mm-hmm. when i say healthy i'm talking right. mentally and that is a really important thing it's it's that will come that will come right. when they are healthy and happy and a lot of people push back at me when i say this they say you know there's a lot of people that are not religious that are very healthy and mm-hmm. i say that's true i'm not saying that everyone who is irreligious is not healthy i'm mm-hmm. saying but for people that are going through the process that have that don't have let's say a trauma around religion per se mm-hmm. and they're struggling with mental or health challenges that will come when they're able to mm-hmm. kind of get th- work yeah. through this mm-hmm. and for some people it takes a long time it's not mm-hmm. it's not a quick journey it's not a quick trip yeah it really isn't so kaya mm-hmm. what would you say to uh, somebody who's listening mm-hmm. who has a loved one that is struggling with addiction, what would you, what would your words to them be? I think the first thing, or I would say like the other, like the spouse, the family member is to, um, I don't know exactly what I needed to know then, but like hearing from someone who was, who would have been in my position or who knows what I'm going through and finds a language of possible hope, even though there's not always a happy ending. God, like, I guess number one, that you're not alone. There are other people who are going through this. I think, yeah, I think it's like a harder, like, I think it's to me specifically, if somebody asked me now for help, I would say straight up go to Helena. Like, that's just like, boom, boom. Absolutely. I don't mean to be like, but I was told that like a couple of times, my brother-in-law who, you know, sure, who was, I had gone through, you know, family members with addiction. He told me, I'm going to go take you to Al-Anon. And I was like, I was so embarrassed and ashamed when he told me that. I'm like, you're seeing something in my marriage. You're seeing something in my life. That's like, I didn't talk to you about this. I didn't tell you that once you're struggling. Yeah, you know, and they were very close to family, but like to point it out in that way. So like, I wouldn't say like, go to Al-Anon if like, just to walk up at somebody like, I see your husband's, you know, drinking. And like, I see you felt like, that is one of like the biggest saving graces, I think, for anybody who is in a relationship and struggling with living with someone who's an addict. But I don't know if I, would, like I said, like I don't know if I would tell them that. And at that well, if they time, were coming was, to you, 
if they were coming yeah, to you and saying coming to me i'd be like like you could talk to me for hours and hours and hours but like i would suggest you go to a meeting i'll take you to a meeting come with me to a meeting um and if you don't want to listen and you're not going to do that i can't force you to go and you're not going to go until you're ready to go so if you want me to share with you and be like i hear you i feel your pain i know what it's like this sucks i don't i don't know if it's going to work out for you that i can i can be compassionate i can be loving and like I had friends who had, you know, who were there for me and who listened to my pain. Didn't help me. It didn't get out of my circumstances. It just like helped me escape for a few minutes and helped me like feel okay and helped me to have someone to talk to. Um, but I really think like the tools are Al-Anon to start. And then from there, who knows where that's going to go. And you may be forever married to somebody who's an addict. You may be forever dealing with this, or you may decide not to be with that person anymore. But like, yeah. That's, That's where you'll find support. Yeah. I, I would I would agree with that. Um, Al-Anon has been incredible. I went the first year because like that's what I was meant to do. And it, I don't know, some things like were ringing bells, but like stopped going for many years because like I don't need it. You're doing great. I'm doing great. We're doing other things. A year and a half ago, I was talking to a friend about something with one of my kids, and she's like, I think you started you need to start going to Al-Anon again. I'm like, oh, you're right. And I only recently started going again, and now it's like click, 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 click. Like, yeah. this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And also trying different meetings, like some are a fit, some aren't going different places mm-hmm. has also been helpful too. And just keep, keep, keep at it, keep at it. And let me ask you, Masha Dove, as we close up, what would you say to somebody who's listening, who is either in addiction, struggling with those feelings that you described, and doesn't necessarily look at themselves and say, oh, I, don't, I didn't do a bomb and then go out. I, I wasn't like him, but, but mm-hmm. clearly struggling with an addiction, but it's maybe not as clear to them. What would, you, what would you say to them? What would your advice be? And they didn't ask me anything? See, that's a great... <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they're listening and bells are going off in their head and they're like, if, I if wonder I what sense, they would... If I sense that somebody is in pain, and if I'm operating slow enough, also pay attention to if I say anything, would it even seep in? What could I what could I say or do that would actually have them know that there's hope for them? And sometimes it's um you know, if it's somebody that I know and knows that I know anything, you know, maybe it's putting my arm on, you know, putting my hand on the shoulder and saying, whenever you're ready, bro, mm. you know me, just call me. I'm here for you. Call me. You know, that's one thing. Or it could just be, I love you and just give him a hug and not say anything. And the same message will come across so that the, the day he's ready, he'll call me. Um, but if somebody calls me and they're like, I'm ready to go, there you go. I'm like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. it to the right direction. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky and it's just important to do it slowly and come from a place of, of trust, you know, which is a massive part of, of any 12-step work. It's like really, really just trusting, you know? from a place of trust yeah because if it comes from like intensity or neediness or you know because that's what we can easily do like if i if i i don't need people to get sober Mm -hmm. sure 
And I'm saying that it's, I'm not saying I don't need them because I say I don't care. Right. I can't afford to need for them to get sober, mainly because it's not helpful. It doesn't work. It, it cuts me off from my actual, my actual effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So I need to work on myself all the time to make sure to remove myself from the neediness to change anybody. And then I can love to change them or love to change them. I could love to invite them, them and support them. And the, it would naturally, I think a natural occurrence would be that they they would want to improve their own lives. And that's you usually know? how it happens when somebody yeah. is really ready because that's the only time it happens. Like you can't get, you know, if you're listening into this episode and you're thinking like, how did Chaya get Moshe mm -hmm. Dove to stop drinking? Mm -hmm. She did it. It's mm -hmm. not yeah. how it happened. His higher power actually mm -hmm. made that happen. And it's a process and it happens yeah. and you cannot make that happen quicker or, you know, than you, than, than when it's supposed to happen. Yeah. And, I think um, that's a good distinction to make. I think right here would be a good place to make it. Um, both of us were in, in the grips of addiction. Mm -hmm. I was, I was doing it mm -hmm. and she was trying to control it. Right, we were both at the mercy of my using. If she can be the the best, most effective way that she can quote unquote get me to get help, is for her to demonstrate and model to me what it looks like to be free from addiction. And the way for her to be free from addiction is for her to not be dependent on my behaviors and my addiction. So yeah. working an Al-Anon program, which allows the person to just in the, be a, a whole human being by themselves without the need to change the addict's behavior or the person with the addiction without trying to control the addiction, that person now becomes a source mm -hmm. of of comfort, hope, and, and modeling of what it looks like. So, oh man, she's she's so free. What am I doing? I could be, yeah. I could be free too. And yeah. I've heard people say that. I've actually heard people share that they've come to Al-Anon to figure out how do I get my spouse mm -hmm. to stop drinking? They realize they have no control over that. They start doing their own work and letting go of control, which mm -hmm. we all do. This is not just people mm -hmm. who are married to addicts or have children who are addicts. This is all of us humans. And that's why I tell people all the time, go to Alan on, I don't have a yeah. qualifier. I'm like, go anyway. But yeah. <laughs> the yeah. point is, is that, you know, once you start doing that, it almost is like, you're not doing it to get the person to stop, obviously, but it seems like sometimes that's how it happens. Like yeah. for some people, that's, that's their, yeah. their journey. Yeah, um, it's for me, it was not that way. But... It's taking full yeah. responsibility for your experience of what's happening. Yeah. And, and when I say responsibility, I'm, I like to cut the words in half right it's response ability we have the ability to respond however we choose to be and we can choose to do it in a way that is actually more wholesome and, and authentic to ourselves and when we're free there's much higher chances that the other person is also going to become free and either they'll join or you'll actually have the confidence to create a separation or to give them an ultimatum but if, if a person's not free from the addiction, they, they usually don't have this, they're not really choosing to give the person an ultimatum. It's more like coming from a state of desperation and that's not empowering and it's not, and you feel like it's, it's you know, people can feel like they're self, it's not self-deceiving, but they're, they're, they're going against what they really want. They really want the marriage to work out. 
course, but it's not going to be effective. It's not an effective way of, of getting the results we want. So I want to thank you both for joining me today. This was so insightful and so um, enriching. I, I, I So many thoughts are, are coming through my mind, but I want to thank you. So thank you so thank much. You. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. <sighs> yeah. Oh, great. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you gained as much as I did from this episode. I'm sure that if even one person feels less alone, feels like they're not the only one dealing with this, if they feel supported by just listening to somebody else's story, then we've accomplished what we're trying to accomplish here on a positive podcast. So thanks again for listening and wishing you a wonderful, positive day.